0: All right, well, have any of you ever worked a job where you had to have a performance evaluation? You know, when you meet with your boss after your boss has inspected your work and they review how you've been doing, they share it with you, perhaps in the form of a report or maybe a frank conversation or uh, maybe a pink slip in the worst kind of scenario. You know, those things can be a little nerve-wracking, no? Right? I mean... I worked for the state of Wyoming for six years. I was an auditor for the state, and you could probably tell by my glasses, actually, that I was an auditor. And it was my job to inspect the work of other people, all right? But what goes around comes around, and twice a year, every six months, all of my records would be pulled. All of my work would be examined and inspected my boss would have a thorough report that he would write up about the job that I was doing. Now, even though that review only happened once every six months, I knew that every single day I was at work, that my work was under inspection. I knew that I was accountable to something and someone more than just myself, and I had to answer for my time, my efforts, my attitude on the job. So knowing that, I did my best to apply myself every single day. I showed up on time. I diligently worked. I made sure that I didn't neglect anything that I was trained or expected or required to do so that when that review would indeed come and I would present my record of my work before my boss, I would have no need to be ashamed. I hoped to hear, well done. Now we're in... Second Timothy chapter 2, we're going to be covering verses 14 through 19, so turn there with me if you will. And in this passage here, we see that we are to present ourselves to God as workers for Him who are under inspection. We see things in this passage, useless things, disgraceful things, things to avoid, things that are a cancer to the church things that fail inspection. But also we see things to pursue, things which are fitting of an approved worker, a worker that, if faithful, will have no need to be ashamed and will one day hear, well done, good and faithful servant. So we start out right in verse 14. It says, remind them of these things. Now, what are these things? Well, these things are the things that we just covered last week. You know, some of you who have been with the Lord for a while, you may check out during the middle of a sermon and say, yeah, I I already know all this stuff. Some of you may hear the topic of what we're going to be covering for the adult Sunday school and say, okay, fundamentals of the faith, basics of doctrine. My doctrine's solid. I've been a Christian for X amount of years, and I know my Bible. But so much of preaching is not just giving you new information. It's reminding you of what you already know. So Timothy here is commanded to remind the church in Ephesus of these things, which happen to be in the last passage we just covered. They're the essentials of gospel truth. Remember Jesus Christ. In fact, that was the first phrase of our last passage that we covered. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. And then those things that we recited, that hymn that's in the last section, verses 11 through 13, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. And if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Now, all of those things were things that Timothy knew. All of those things, hopefully, if he was doing an effective job as pastor and overseer of the congregations in Ephesus, all of those people in those congregations would know all those things. But so much of preaching and Bible teaching is reminding you constantly of the core of the gospel message, of Jesus Christ crucified for our sins, his atoning death, and his resurrection. Constantly. So that throughout the highs and lows of life, the business as usual of life, our focus is always recalibrated back to that which really matters. And at all times, Christ is at the center, the forefront of our lives. Then we read here, continuing on in verse 14, And charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Charge them before God not to quarrel about words. What does that mean? Well, basically, Timothy is to command the church there to stop bickering over nonsense, like knock it off. You know, as a worker for Christ, remembering what truly matters means that we remember what hills are really worth dying on, right? What hills are really worth dying on. Just like in any job or any task, you can get so bogged down in trivial details that you forget the whole point of why you're doing what you're doing in the first place. After this rain, I'm going to have to mow my lawn, I'm sure. And if I was so obsessed over the height of one blade of grass that I forget that there's an entire lawn that needs to be cut, I think I would fail at the task that was before me. And some people really love to argue about minutiae about incredibly narrow, esoteric topics that they may have an interest in, but it's just a self-serving interest. It's just a way for them to sharpen their own skills of argument, a way for them to maybe assert what they believe or their own authority over other people. And you know what? I call these topics hobby horses. You know, like a rocking toy horse. Did any of you have those when you were a kid? Or do any of you kids have those? You know, it looks like a horse, And you rock back and forth, you spend a lot of energy doing it, and you might have fun doing it, but where does it go? It goes nowhere. And that's what these kind of discussions and disagreements are. Now, in the church, we're told that we're constantly to be edifying one another. Iron sharpens iron. But any time you plant your flag in the sand over an area of opinion, ask yourself, in light of eternity does this truly matter in light of eternity does this matter because we see the fruitlessness over arguing over opinions it says right here it ruins the hearers romans 10 17 says that faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of christ Now, if what people in the church are hearing, if what people outside of the church are hearing from believers are not the words of Christ, but it's sophistry, bickering, and man's opinion, then that's not edifying to the hearers. It's ruinous, especially when we as a church engage in this nonsense and quarreling about words with one another. Now, don't hear me wrong. This passage is not outlawing any disagreements or discussions in the church. No, in fact, many times those are edifying and healthy. Nor is this passage demanding absolute conformity on every single thing. Of course not. This is about keeping our focus as a worker approved. This is about focusing on what truly matters in light of eternity. And in so doing, we must avoid pointless quarrels that can only yield bitterness and division. So on matters where the Scripture is clear, speak boldly. On things of Christ, stand firm. Just like we saying. that's the solid rock. That's the firm foundation. But everything else, that's shaky ground. That's sinking sand. So ask yourself, am I choosing the right hills to die on? Because there's an unlimited amount of hills out there that you can die on in this world. Pointless things, trivial things, things of some importance. Am I choosing the right hills to die on? And am I being bold about what truly matters? But then we continue on in verse 15, and this is really the core of where I came up with this title and, and the intro it says in verse 15, do your best To present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Do your best. Now, do your best kind of sounds like something you'd tell your kid when he's running to take the field in a T ball game, right? Like, hey, do your best, kiddo. Remember it's just a game, have fun. You know, it's kind of a passive encouragement, is how we might read that. But in reality, this is an imperative. It's a command. It reads much closer to work with everything you've got. Leave it all out there. Focus and do whatever it takes to accomplish a particular objective. Now notice here, Timothy, as a pastor, is not being commanded to, hey, you know, do your best so you can present yourself to your congregation as one that they would approve of or do your best to present yourself to the world as one that they would approve of of course not even though that seems to be the motivation of so many out there you no know, remember who this is for we are to be above reproach before everyone else but our faithfulness is to god alone so understand here this paradox that that this apparent paradox salvation is because of God. You did nothing to earn it. It is 100% because of God. Your sanctification is 100% God. Again. And your perseverance, you clinging and holding fast and enduring in Him, in Christ till the end, is 100% because of God. Not because of you. But, Here we're seeing a command. There's still a charge for us to apply ourselves and to do our best with everything that God has called us and set us apart to be. Now the imagery here as we read this is is very clear. It's that Timothy and all of us are under inspection before God. Even this word for present yourself to God is in just like I said before my boss in the job I worked. It's to go before either a royal or a superior, a commanding officer, and to present yourself to them as one for inspection. Inspection of who you are, your work. We know that God has set us apart. He's purposed us to do His will, and He orders our steps, and He knows all things. He's watching us. He knows what we're doing. He knows how we're doing it. He knows what we're saying. But even far more than that, He knows our thoughts our attitudes, our motivations, our heart. Jeremiah 17.10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So in our work for the Lord, we are to live constantly with that mindset that we are presenting ourselves before the creator of the universe at all times for inspection to be one approved. He is the one we're ultimately accountable to. Now, when I say this, this command is not in here to make Timothy paranoid. It's not in here to make you or I or anyone paranoid, and it's certainly not to discourage you or cause you to live in perpetual fear, okay? It's not to make you say, oh, hey, God is always watching. I better not mess up, and uh, you know, I'm going to tiptoe and walk on eggshells. No, there is no greater joy than living a life for Christ. There's no greater joy than doing His work, and there's no greater resting place of peace and fulfillment than being in Christ. But... This is here to remind us who indeed it's all for so that with everything we have we strive to serve our Savior as one who He would approve to represent Him. A worker who did not neglect anything that we were set apart and enabled to be and one that will hear well done, good, and faithful servant. A worker who has no need to be ashamed. Now this is cause for all of us to examine ourselves, to look deeply, to allow the Holy Spirit to deeply look within ourselves and convict us and ask, knowing that God sees everything, knowing that God knows our hearts even better than we know ourselves, knowing that God even discerns our thoughts, When I present myself before God, my efforts, my thoughts, my attitude, my heart, am I one approved? Do I have no need to be ashamed? Does God approve of the commitment I give to Him? Look, I believe every last person here should internalize this and realize, come to the realization that we all still have a lot of growing left to do. But so much of that, so much of growing, so much of being a worker approved by God who has no need to be ashamed is rightly handling the word of truth, as it says right here. Rightly handling the word of truth. Now, this word for rightly handling or in some of your translations it might be rightly dividing it means to cut straight to make a straight cut. So think of a farmer plowing a field. You know, all these corn rows out here just it's so cool living in Wyoming for so long when I see all this agriculture it, it's almost mesmerizing when you drive past these cornfields and these perfect symmetrical lines cut straight now they have tractors and computers and machines to help them do that but also a surgeon making cuts to cut straight we have woodworkers in this church and when they cut to cut straight the idea here is accuracy accuracy in what the scripture means Accuracy in conveying what it means to others and accuracy of how we ought to apply that meaning to our individual lives to conform more and more into the likeness of Christ. Cutting straight what God is saying, shooting it straight, being accurate to it. And let me be clear, in case you've heard otherwise, the Bible only has one meaning. What I mean by that is God is saying something specific in each passage. It's called the word of truth, not the word of your truth and the word of my truth. It's called the word of truth, not the word of whatever it means to you. And it's certainly not called the word of whatever I want it to mean or the word of whatever suits my interests. No, God is saying something in his word. And since the Bible is the word of truth, and since we can see here that there is a right handling or a right dividing of the word of truth, then all other ways in which the Bible can be handled are wrong ways. A preacher is only as good as he is accurate to the word of God. A servant, a worker of Christ is only as good as they are faithful to the word. So with that, a Bible teacher must take meticulous care to understand and convey what God's Word is saying, and all of us in the same way must take the same meticulous care to internalize what the Word is saying and let it shape our lives. Thankfully, God didn't leave us as orphans. He gave us the indwelling Holy Spirit who can teach Christ to us and convict us. Verse 16, we see some disgraceful things of a worker who is not approve things to avoid it reads but avoid irreverent babble for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene now, the first question i have certainly perhaps you have is well what exactly is irreverent babble like what what fits under that you know other translations say godless chatter Profane and vain babblings, worthless, foolish talk, idle talk, worldly and empty chatter. I mean, that's kind of a wide umbrella, right? Conceivably, a lot of things could fall under that. Of course, this would include any opinion or pseudo-wisdom or false teaching or hobby horse or any divisiveness that is contrary to the Word of God and to God's perfect holy standard. From outside of the church, it's not hard to find. These are the false doctrines of our day, the social mores of our time. But so often, Satan likes to work inside the walls of the church. Now, this entails false teachings, of course, from within the church. But also many times this entails gossip or slander, viciousness, stubbornness, Factions over those very things that do not matter in light of eternity, over man's opinion, over having things our way. It involves divisive talk that undermines the unity of the church, its people, and its leaders. Now, many of us who have been in the church for a while have seen with our own eyes how this irreverent babble can tear apart a church. It's gut wrenching, it's heartbreaking. It's grotesque to watch. And that's why the Bible warns us about it so much, so many times. So as one who is under inspection to be approved by God, always be ready to ask yourself, is my speech being used by Christ to build up his body? Or is it being used by Satan to tear it apart? Because no matter how benign this idle, irreverent babble may seem. Oh, it's just chit-chat here and there. I just shared with a few people, you know, these deceitful things. Jesus is grieved by it. Satan loves it. And that's because it has such devastating effects on the church. It says right here, it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. Look, when mistruths fall upon willing listeners, it cannot produce righteousness. It only produces more sin. When divisiveness festers, it only produces more divisiveness. It pulls apart the church. And beyond that, it spreads. Satan is hard at work to tear apart the body of Christ and the church. And it says their talk will spread like gangrene. Now, have any of you ever seen what, what gangrene looks like? It's, it's rather unsightly, right? <laughs> gangrene is dead tissue. It's caused by a lack of blood supply or an infection. It, it is disgusting to look at. It is grotesque. It's dead. It's rotting. It's falling apart. I've never seen it with my own two eyes. I haven't had to smell it either. I bet it doesn't smell too good. But you know what the course of action is when someone has gangrene? It's to cut it off, to amputate it, to remove it completely. But interestingly enough, the word used for gangrene, in fact, the Greek word is where we derive the term gangrene, but that's also the same word the Greeks used for cancer. They saw gangrene and cancer as just kind of the same condition in that time, so it's the same word. So understand this. False, ungodly, ungodly divisive talk in the church is so seductive, it's such an insidious and destructive tool of Satan, and it's such a danger to the health of the church that the Word of God describes it like a malignant tumor. If not treated quickly and allowed to grow, it leads to death. So we can't be more clear here. The text can't be more clear. The church must take decisive action. The church must absolutely not allow or tolerate any divisive, deceitful, untrue talk. And for those engaged in spreading this disease, the only recourse is repentance or removal. So as members of the body, as people in the family that is the church, we have to guard ourselves ourselves. We have to guard the church and we have to be used uh, by the Holy Spirit to ask ourselves, are we being used by Christ to build up his church or by Satan to dismantle it? In fact, we see right here a direct example of those cancerous lies that were affecting the church in Timothy's day. As we read, among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. Now, the Bible doesn't give us every single detail about Hymenaeus and Philetus. We saw Hymenaeus earlier in 1 Timothy, so he's been a problem for a while. But one thing that we can tell about them is that they, at one point in time, appeared to be solid, Right? It says they swerved away from the truth. We can see that the error that they were professing involved some belief that the resurrection has already happened. Now, of course, this is not talking about Jesus Christ's resurrection, because that had indeed already happened. It had happened three decades before Paul is writing to Timothy here in Second Timothy. But most likely what is going on here is that these two men were influenced by lies of the world pagan greek philosophy of the time gnosticism and this philosophy taught that hey everything spirit is good everything material is bad so many in that day denied that there would be any such thing as a future bodily resurrection they said oh well it's just a spiritual thing it's already happened If you believe in Christ, you're spiritually resurrected and that's all there is. Now that kind of teaching completely undermines the Gospel. It completely undermines what is clearly taught in the Word. It completely undermines the hope that we have as believers that this isn't it. That we're going to have resurrected, glorified, eternal bodies. That's the hope that we await. But here's something interesting. Bear in mind... These two men, Hymenaeus and Philetus, they probably agreed with you and I and the Apostle Paul on a lot of things, right? They probably saw eye to eye on a lot of certain issues. I mean, they at least claimed to worship the same God that we do, right? They probably claimed Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So they had some good ingredients mixed in, but they mixed in poison they mixed in worldly ideas that are so clearly contrary to the word of god and the result of it was not only that the two of them had swerved from the truth but it says right here that their talk had spread like cancer they upset and overthrew the faith of some they even poisoned other people with their influence how tragic so understand A divisive individual, a false teacher, or a wolf doesn't have to be wrong about everything to be a danger. Many devastating lies are slipped through with a spoonful of truth. You know, if I were to say that I I made you a fruit salad, here it is in this bowl, it's got all these nice, delectable, fresh, organic fruits right here, and it really is delicious, you ought to try it. I will warn you that there are a couple poison berries that i slipped in there I, I don't really know which ones they are or where they are but would you eat it would you take so much of a bite of it of course not Would that past inspection absolutely not you'd throw it out you wouldn't even say no thank you you'd be like get that away from me don't let anyone eat that so paul notes here that these particular people have upset the faith of some they've overthrown That's incredibly bleak to think about. Like I said, you know, some of you may have known or seen people who claim to be a believer, but then they tear the church apart from within. Or people who claim to be a believer, but then are suckered in by these nonsensical lies or suckered in by divisiveness, and then they take other people with them. It's horrific to see, especially when they deceive other people. So what do we do? I mean, this is what we're up against. It seems pretty bleak, right? Well, hold on. Fasten up. There's so much comfort in the coming verse. Verse 19 reads, But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, what an amazing promise. What assurance, especially after the passage we just read And we say, oh no, people will engage in irreverent babble. It's inevitable. It's going to lead people into more and more ungodliness. It's going to spread like cancer. It's all over. What are we going to do? It's hopeless. What will the body of Christ do under such unrelenting assault? Well, yes, there will be those who attack the foundation of God's truth. There will be those who try to tear apart the church. And yes, they may even take some with them. But God's firm foundation stands. The truth of God, the word of God, the plan of God, the purposes of God, they will prevail. Of course, We know that divisive people will be used by the enemy to peel people away from the truth. But we have the seal of authenticity on the church. The foundation stands and it bears a seal which says, the Lord knows those who are His. The Lord knows those who are His. Understand, God is not up in heaven looking down and watching with bated breath and saying, I hope He makes it. Or, I hope that she can get there. God's not doing that at all. The Lord knows those who are His. God knows those who belong to Him by saving faith in Jesus Christ, and He will hold them fast no matter what anyone else or anything else tries to do. No power of hell nor scheme of man will ever pluck you from His hand. So you can rest assured that if you have placed your faith In Jesus Christ, God has placed a seal on you for all of eternity. What an amazing promise. What a gift. But then we see that God's firm foundation also bears a second seal of authenticity for the church. And that we read is, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So that first seal is about God. God knows those who are truly His. The Lord knows. That's about God. But this second seal is about us. If you are truly His, you will leave your sin behind. God knows right now who in this room truly belonged to Him. He knows every single one that truly belongs to Him. But where does that leave us? How how do we demonstrate that? How can we have some assurance? How can we see the fruits of other people's lives and really know as a church, well, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Look, there there are many, unfortunately, especially in a place like this where it's legal, it's easy, it's culturally acceptable to be a Christian. There are many people who name the name of the Lord with their lips, but they deny him with their hearts. There are many who claim to have a transformed life in Jesus Christ, but they deny it with their actions. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, this doesn't mean that if you're saved, you're no longer going to sin. It doesn't mean that if you belong to God, then you're instantly perfected. No more sin. Of course not on this side of eternity, we still battle that old flesh. We still live in a world with sin all around us and we are still being sanctified. But this is about how you respond to sin. Are you convicted when you sin? Does the new you in Christ detest the old part of you that still sometimes sins and still sometimes wants to sin? And do you come before the Lord and confess that sin and depart from it and walk the other way. But everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. If you do, then you have two profound seals on your life. God has called you forth and knowing that you are truly His and then God is working in your life daily to transform you into the worker approved by Him, a worker in the likeness of Christ Until one day we hear, well done, good and faithful servant. This all begins, of course, with understanding how that whole process begins in the first place. Look, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you're not a worker approved or you're not a worker for God whatsoever. You're dead in your sins. It starts by understanding that all have sinned. You are a sinner, but God, being rich in mercy, despite the penalty that those sins demanded by a holy and a just God, he looked upon a world in sin and sent his son, Jesus Christ, God in flesh, to walk among us and to, on his own accord, take up the cross, bearing our sins in our place, taking the full punishment that our sins demanded and he died a true bodily death but death could not hold him he satisfied the payment for our sins he was buried then on the third day he rose again signaling that that payment was paid in full if you believe that jesus christ did that for you to reconcile you to god to give you new life to bring you into this family so you are a worker who one day will hear, well done, good and faithful servant, to give you eternal life and save you from the condemnation of hell that your sins demand. If you believe that Jesus did that for you, then you are saved. And that's where the journey really begins. You have new life in Him, and Jesus as your Savior and Lord is going to take you on the most remarkable, most joyous, most peace-filled And in many ways, most difficult journey that life could possibly offer. But what a joy it is to be working for the Creator, the Savior, the Redeemer of souls, the great and holy and mighty and amazing King and Lord of all, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would just speak into our hearts, that your spirit would convict us, that We would examine ourselves. And when we consider this passage about a a worker approved, presenting ourselves before you who has no need to be ashamed, Lord, I hope that all of us will come before you humbly and realize that we have so much growing left to do. But Lord, we thank you that it's you who accomplishes that growth in us. So Lord, I just pray that we would be humble servants before you allowing you to grow us and transform us daily. That all of us would have the conviction of areas of our life that we have not yet surrendered to you, areas of our heart. And Lord, as we humbly come before you and lift up your name in praise as we close here, I pray that all of us would consider what we can do with the time that you've given us today, tomorrow, this week, this year, the rest of our lives to be that worker approved unto you. We give you all the glory. In the name of Christ, our Lord and King and Savior, amen.